Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast all about members of the historical community getting angry, venting their spleen and putting history to rights. We are the cathartic release for struggling historians who can't afford therapy. I'm public historian Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever-loyal co-host and fellow historian, the legend that is Kyle Glover. Hello, everyone. By legend, I don't really believe you exist. Oh, thank you for that. So today, dear listeners, we are going dark. Dark age, to be precise, with a guest so angry, she's had her own history rage actually stenciled onto shorts which has given me some ideas for merchandise. (laughs) This week, we welcome medieval historian, lecturer at LSE, podcaster, and self-confessed sad, sad medievalist who just wants people to be as weird as her, Dr. Eleanor Yanagar. Eleanor, welcome to History Rage. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get extremely angry for no real reason. (laughs) For all the best reasons. (laughs) Well, I know you chiefly from the podcasting world, as does Kyle. I, um, I've caught Going Medieval on History Hit. Um, but before we get into your chosen rage-based fashion or fashion-based rage, can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself, your background and your career? Yeah, absolutely. So really, from a specialism standpoint, what I'm very angry about isn't even within my realm of specialization. It's just something that's constantly coming for me. Um, But I'm actually, uh, by training, a 14th century specialist, um, because that's the best century. I think we can all agree. Um, And I specialize in the Holy Roman Empire and Bohemia more particularly uh, within that. Um, So I like uh, being very nosy about Czech people and uh, who they're having sex with and what they think about the end of the world. 
Uh, so <laughs> my my specialties are uh, apocalypt- apocalypticism, uh, sexuality, and urbanity. So you know what's going on in cities um, in kind of the late medieval period generally. Because I always say that um, the only two things that are really important are sex and death. So that's yeah. that's what I'm all about. <laughs> um, and uh, you know that that kind of translates out more generally to you know the rest of Europe in order to teach. Uh, and write and things like that. But um, my my real first love is always uh, going to be 14th century Prague, I'm afraid. Well, actually, if you just look at any sort of like medieval illumination, you're going to see sex and death all over the place, aren't you? From, <laughs> from like the Bow Tapestry onwards. Uh, pretty much. Uh, the two things are pretty much bound up in everybody's imagination, I think. Um, and so it's it's a terribly interesting line of work to get yourself into, if you can, in my opinion. Yeah, we might might have to bring you back on to rage that the Holy Roman Empire is neither holy a Roman or an empire. And <laughs> I don't know. See, I'm going to rage that it was holy Roman empire. Be like, listen, Voltaire. Like when I get to hell, I'm going to find Voltaire, and it's on site. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, already, I'd love to get you back on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, coming back to then, what history rage is mostly about? You've been prepping yourself this for this for a while. So please, Eleanor, in your own words, in your own time, please tell our listeners what the hell you wish that the world would just get past. I just need people to understand that the term Dark Ages relates to a lack of sources, not intellectual decline. Oh, thank God somebody said it. I also need people to know that the term Dark Ages just means the early medieval period, not the medieval period, right? Of course, most people who are saying ridiculous things about the quote-unquote Dark Ages don't even understand what the difference between those two things are. They think that medieval and Dark Ages are synonymous and interchangeable. And I mean, this is why we don't use the term Dark Ages anymore, because it ceased to be useful, because you spend all of your time screaming at chuds on the internet, who have like a boner for the Holy Roman Empire for some reason. Not, sorry, not the Holy Roman Empire, just your regular branded Roman Empire, just the old one with all the slaves. They really like it when people own a bunch of slaves. And so when people don't own a bunch of slaves, it's bad for reasons that I need citations for and don't really understand. Have they read a book on this ever? No, (laughs) no. But they're navigating based on a lot of vibes. Um, And the thing that makes it so frustrating when you're a medieval historian is like, even when you say to people, look, this is, this is factually, you know, this term was invented by Caesar Baronius in the 17th century when he was writing, you know, a history of Europe. This is what it, it means. They'll say, oh, yeah, well, then why weren't there any sources? Like, they, like they've kind of gotcha on this one and as though that proves them right. And it's like, no, man, like, they, it's not about something being bad or everything just sucks. So there were no sources. It's that I don't think you really realize how long ago, you know, 1400 years was. That's a really long time. Mm. And when you have a, a decentralized government, so you have lots of smaller governments, you have like smaller libraries and smaller individuals who have to kind of keep sources around. So people get rid of them. Like every time I move house, I chuck out all my old utility bills that I've been saving, you know, for years. You know, I, I, I don't keep every single record of my council taxes that I ever paid, you know, in paper format, because why would I do that? There's going to be some furious historians in about 200 years, aren't there? This sex and death obsessed woman didn't pay council tax. <laughs> 
I mean, it's, it, and I try to say also, you know, the, the way that uh, we now keep documents, for example, you know, how floppy disks no longer exist. Yeah. In 200 years, we're going to be in real trouble because there are huge, huge swaths of information and documents that are just gone already that we can't access that are just from the 90s, you know, so... Yeah. We are living in a time where it should be easier to understand why the Dark Ages happened, but because of the judgments that people make and the the presupposed vibes that they have for it, they're just like, no, no, this is definitely what this means. I'm on top of it. And it was just a really bad time and nobody knew how to read. And it's just really intense and difficult to deal with. Just for the benefit of our listeners who are, you know, more angled down the World War II angle. Mm-hmm. Could you just define, you know, where the the kind of time period yeah. that you view the <laughs> when, Dark Ages as being? When are we? Talking yeah. About okay. That? So the Dark Ages generally, you know, you can say from about the quote unquote fall of Western Rome. Um, you know, I don't even really believe in the fall of Rome, but that's fine. In, in about 475, uh, when uh, Romulus Augustulus was uh, deposed by Odoacer. Um, as we all know. Um, and then it's kind of up until, you know, I, I think a good real rule of thumb is like Charlemagne. So around the year 800 or so, just as a, a quick and easy rule of thumb, because when we get into the Carolingian Renaissance uh, with Charlemagne, we have just oodles of texts because that man loved nothing more than to copy, uh, you know, some Aristotle. That's that's what he was all about. So um, who wouldn't? That's, I know. I, I'm I'm very excited for him to do that. I love I love seeing his work. And then, of course, that sits within the Middle Ages more broadly, which is again from about 475 up to you know question mark. Basically, if you hit Martin Luther, you've gone far enough. But when we all argue yeah. about what the end of the Middle Ages is, it really depends. So you know, you might say it begins with the Columbian Exchange. Um, if you're me and you're a Czech specialist, you might say it starts with the Hussites. It all depends. Uh, but basically, when you hit the 16th century, you've gone too far. So there. It's like 1,100 years of history. It's a really long time. And we actually know tons about, you know, like the 14th century, for example. And this is why I'm not an early medieval specialist, because I want documents, because I'm lazy. So, <laughs> yeah. so as you say, the Dark Ages refers to a lack of sources, uh, not a mm. lack of intelligence in the people. What surviving sources do we have? So it's really interesting um, because from earlier on in the period, we have some pretty cool diplomatic materials, for example. Um, You will get stuff from uh, various successor kings where they're kind of trying to intimate that they are emperors, which I absolutely love. Um, You know, so uh, you will see, for example, um, the Frankish King Clovis. We have a lot about his life and kind of legends about him and his uh, conversion to Christianity. And we have um, lots of stuff that is still in Rome, which is interesting because, you know, you still got, for example, um, Mm. the Pope is there. The Pope's not very important in the early Middle Ages, to be clear. He's kind of just like the Bishop of Rome, but like writing very furiously to make sure that in, you know, 400 years, people will think he is important. And that pays off for the Pope. So good for him. Uh, Well done, everybody. Um, We have kind of a lot of religious texts because, again, the sort of people who are going to keep documents around are going to be the people who have room for documents and who are constantly making them. So we've got a lot of uh, church things. We've got a lot of um, sermons. Occasionally we will have um, letters back and forth from uh, various people, which is, which is nice and fun. Some of it diplomatic, some of it personal. 
And we definitely have, for example, philosophical works, which is, you know, the big hallmark of the Middle Ages is people are constantly, constantly writing uh, philosophy. So there is plenty of stuff there. But the other thing to flag up within all this is, of course, over in the Eastern Roman Empire, a.k.a. Byzantium, uh, you know, they've got, oh, we've got documents like you wouldn't believe over there. So it's also really weird to kind of say, oh, the quote unquote dark ages is a thing. And it's like, well, what's going on over there? You know, like, why are all those Greek people have absolutely tons of documents? And you're just like, oh, no, Greek people don't count. Well, why don't Greek people count? Indeed. yeah. <laughs> yes, our resident Greece obsessive here will uh, will be well on board yeah. with that. The Greek dark yeah. age is a whole different thing, but that's for another podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you know, it it doesn't even really kind of make sense as a term, and you can really see that it's used specifically in the context of Western Europe, uh, because yeah, we have we have fewer documents, but at the same time, like that's mostly just a problem for us as historians. That's not indicative like of a society being, you know, quote unquote dark or bad. Like it's not a pejorative, Mm. you know, it's it, we don't just because you don't necessarily know what everyone was writing to each other every day doesn't mean that life was terrible and bad and actually it would be better if we brought the big slave state back like there's there's no real reason to argue for that unless you happen to be uh writing in the early modern period and you were trying to make a case for why it's good to have giant slave empires hint hint how come we've not got sources i mean we've got hordes of sources for things before the dark ages mm-hmm. we've got tons of sources for periods after the dark mm. ages So there's a lack of sources there. Why? Well, part of it is really interesting because part of it is about what medieval people value. And medieval people, ironically, a lot like the people that I'm always arguing with on the internet, um, medieval people also think that classical things are more important than medieval things. And that's just a fact. And there's a medieval way of thinking about knowledge generally, which is that the further we go in time, the farther we get away from the perfect knowledge that all humans humans had in the Garden of Eden. So as we move away from our proximity to the divine, our ability to be privy to all knowledge is deteriorating constantly. So the further along the timeline you get, the worse the knowledge is. If you can go backwards... The knowledge is better because it's closer in time to God. So there's that. Right. Another thing is that medieval people, a lot of the time, base conceptions of power or their own arguments for it, specifically on Rome. So you can see this on the Holy Roman Empire. They're like, well, we're the new Christian iteration of Rome, and this is where we get our power from. Um, You will see legends all over medieval Europe connecting themselves to kind of uh, Rome or the Greek past. So for example, there'll be legends uh, here in uh, England where people will say, oh yeah, we are, we are related to Brutus who survived the Trojan War, got on a boat, came to the island of Britain, defeated a race of giants, and that's why we're important. Um, you know, you will say yeah. p- there's, there's Romulus and Remus in Rome, you know, there are all these things. Yeah. So people like to build on a, a lot of the time imagined, a classical past in order to justify their own power. And so again, that's when, you know, if you show them a document from Rome or Greece, they're going to be like, that's really important. Like we, we need to keep that. Yeah. Um, and 
then as also as a result of that, you have huge programs to propagate those same sources. So again, that's what Charlemagne was doing. Charlemagne really specifically wanted to uh, disseminate texts from the classical period. So he sets up all these scriptorium and he's like, quick, let's get copying every Plato you've got, every Aristotle you've got, let's circulate those. So there are a lot of the time sources that we have that are classical actually come from the medieval period. Yeah. <laughs> so much so that um, in the 15th century, when the quote unquote Renaissance is taking off they're uh, they really want to make their handwriting look classical. And so they're like, quick, go find me the oldest copy of Aristotle you can find, you know, and what they find is actually stuff from the Carolingian Renaissance. And they base their script on Carolingian script. So it's called humanist script. They thought they were being, you know, classical, but they're actually being medieval, right? So there is, there is a, there is a campaign on the part of medieval people to, uh, to actually big up, you know, Rome and all those things. And, you know, this comes along with the fact that there's just not that much space, bro. Like, <laughs> so most of most of everything is, is uh, held over for farming, right? Like, that, that's yep. what's going on. So you keep documents in monasteries, you keep them, you know, at courts, things like this, and people get rid of stuff. You know, people get rid of stuff all the time because it's like, well, why do I need to know what was happening 300 years ago? That, like, let alone 50 years ago, it's just not yeah. that important. If you're sitting there in the 11th century, you're throwing away your council tax bills. Yeah, yeah like, why, like, why, why do you care what's happening back then? Especially if you don't think that those guys were that important. And then, of course, on top of that, you have, um, you know, the unpleasantness <laughs> that happened yeah. uh, in the early modern period. You have stuff like Henry VIII's uh, dissolution of the monar- uh, the monasteries, uh, where yeah. we have whole libraries just burnt, you know, just straight up burnt down, and we lose a lot of stuff there. Or there's a similar thing that happens in the German lands in the 17th century, where a lot of the monastic libraries are consolidated, and if they didn't like it, it was gone and they just burnt it. So, you know, over and over, you'll see libraries that are consolidated and people prize what they prize. And on the whole, it tends to be that people just like the classical stuff more and they ditch the medieval things. And so there's also just the own biases of the medieval period of the modern period that's self-selecting to keep the older things alive, basically. We've basically established that people in the dark ages were just as intelligent as the people before and people after. So what kind mm-hmm. of advances took place during this time period? I'm thinking both in terms of like technology and society as a whole. Yeah, so there is a lot of um, interesting uh, tech that happens at this yeah. time. And a lot of it has to do with uh, farming and also drainage, which I think is incredibly cool because I'm a nerd. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I live about 15 miles away from Monk Breton Priory. <laughs> Uh, which oh. uh, proudly, proudly announces the finest example of medieval drains in Europe, and they are really quite something. Yeah, like, drains are like drainage is really, really an exciting thing that kind of happens in this uh, period, and it takes on um, a life of its own. So the advances that we get in terms of drainage allow us to basically reclaim all sorts of lands. So essentially, the lowlands, so what is now Belgium and the Netherlands, that all exists because yep. people in this period were like, eh, I feel like we're going to need to move in there. We're going to have to get rid of some of this bog, you know, and, and they figured out how to do that. Um, the heavy plow, boop, 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 the heavy plow, huge, big deal, huge, huge, big deal because um, the Northern European soils are much more clay than Southern European soils. Um, so we needed a heavier plow. Um, it does what it says on the tin, 
uh, it's quite heavy, so it can cut. It can cut through. Uh, it can cut through clay soil more often, and this means that there's way more arable land um, all of a sudden. So it's quite funny. The same people who are constantly telling me how great Rome is and how everyone in the Dark Ages is stupid. You know, Romans never took yeah. over the German-speaking lands, and they certainly weren't farming there, bro. So, like, you know, how is it that early medieval people have figured this out and, like, all the Romans in the world couldn't get together and say, oh, let's get a heavy plow? Uh, answer, because they had a lot of slaves, so they were just making the slaves do it and they didn't care. It was slaves. We don't need to yeah. invent new tools if you've just got more slaves. Yeah, yeah just throw some people yeah. at it. Just, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, why invent a labor-saving device if you're not doing the labor? exactly it's just i can't understand why that would be important and in fact why don't you get me another slave now to write for me i'm feeling lazy you know so it's that and that's a really cool piece of tech actually that is a huge game changer for how many mouths can be fed how much land you can actually farm and where you can start settling as a result of that so we do see for example um smaller urban centers in the early medieval period because it's just difficult to kind of keep a tax base off. And when, you know, urban centers in the Roman period are basically so that rich people can fop around and have a nice time, you know, you don't need those so much if Rome doesn't exist. But we do see kind of more villages start to spring up in places where they couldn't before. So we see this expansion of villages and an expansion of agriculture into places it couldn't go. And then that is going to lead to the boom in urban centers in what we call the high medieval period. So like, you know, 1000 to 1250 or so. So that, you know, all of these agricultural things, you know, we'll, we'll eventually get onto the three field system. We eventually get onto horse collars, which means that you can use horses to plow instead of oxen. And there, these are huge, big step forwards that allow you to just feed a lot more people. And like, I tell you, when you're the one scrapping in the dirt, this this is a lot more important. And I, I think one of the things that we, we have to really keep in mind, even when we're talking about source survival or things like that, is that, you know, 80% of the European population in the Middle Ages are peasants, right? They don't care about document. Like, you know, what about a document, right? Like us like worrying about documents all the time is just us caring about the concerns of rich people. And it's not about what day-to-day life was like. And to be fair, that's the same in Rome. You know, most people were not rich. It's just that we have a lot of documents from rich people. So what any of this would have to do or how it would necessarily affect your average life as a peasant is low. Um, Although I will admit that, you know, there are things in the early medieval period, like you're not getting amphorae from Tunisia anymore. Okay. Like it's not going to happen. Right. I know. And I like those. And I want for from Tunisia, but when you don't have an empire that's sending boats back and forth across the Mediterranean constantly, you can't have these specialized centers of, for example, ceramic production. Mm. Uh, but it does mean that people make their own ceramics. It, it, it was never impossible for them to do it. Um, and so then people are like, ooh, this pot isn't as fancy. Screw your pot, homie. I don't care about your pot. Like, what, whatever. Like, as long as my boys are getting three squares a day. They're getting surplus crops. That's what I want to see. That's tech, baby. Ask me how fancy a pot needs to be like when you're hungry. I don't care. No. Yeah. Is it, no. Is it waterproof? Yes. Fine. Good enough. Mm-hmm. Good to go. Yeah. That's it. I'd like to throw a little bit of a uh, challenge and a bonus question in there because you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago getting onto the three field system. Mm-hmm. Now, 
I can pretty much pinpoint the moment at school I lost interest in history. <laughs> uh, and that was our first term. We had gone classroom full of eight-year-old boys. Uh, we had done the Battle of Hastings, the Battle of Ashencourt, the Battle of Bosworth, and then we got onto the free three field system of farming. I love and the three field system. I'm out at that point. So come on, Eleanor, make me interested in the three field <laughs> okay, system. Okay, so the the free field system is really really exciting. Okay, it takes over from the two field system. So the two field system is basically like you have like half the land that you're working on, and the other half you leave it fallow so that it you know, regenerates and you can grow things. The three field system answers the important question, what if there were three fields? And okay. so, so what it's doing is it's rotating crops around. So you still have a fallow one. And then after the fallow period, you will grow something like wheat or rye. That something is kind of like really intensive. Um, and it, and the, like you do that in the autumn, right? And so that can be uh, harvested in the winter. So you don't starve over winter. Very, very excited. Um, your second field, it has stuff like peas or lentils or beans. Um, and these are really cool because they put nitrogen back into the soil. So it means that like it's going to be way richer afterwards. Um, also, veaches. Veaches are big. Uh Veaches come up a lot. I don't know. And then you leave that fallow. So the thing that's happening is that basically you can always grow a crop, right? So you can grow a crop in the winter. You can grow a crop in the spring. You can just be eating all of the time. And um, I'm sorry, but fundamentally, one of the most exciting things is not starving. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, like, it's, it's good to not do that. Yep. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's really cool because it allows for a huge, huge boom in population. Um, and that's mm. when we really see urbanization and stuff like that again, because we're just feeding way, way more people. Um, so it is actually cool. Uh, and I like it very much. And this has been peasant chat. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just think peasants are cool. You Thank know? you very much. If neat. only that could have happened when I was eight years old, I might today have a history degree. <laughs> I overrated one of them. Yeah, I don't know what you're going to do with that, mate. I don't know. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, going from boring peasant chat to exciting Hollywood, I, quite a few of other guests have suggested that movies and TV shows have had quite a big influence on mm. people's perceptions of their chosen era. You've done mm-hmm. quite a lot of it on YouTube, critiquing <laughs> said movies and TVs. Yeah. Expand. Can you tell us what is Hollywood responsible for? Yeah. 
So this is an interesting thing because, like, in the first place, you're not going to find a Hollywood movie about the Dark Ages. <laughs> like, it's not, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, they, they just don't know what to do with it. I don't know. Maybe someday someone will make one about the Islamic conquests or something, and that would be really cool. And I would, frankly, love to see that movie, but it has not yet been done. Um, what you do get, however, are medieval movies that are just completely factually incorrect like in the first place everyone's wearing a sack that is filthy Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like they're just they're just dressed in brown um the medieval world is the exact opposite of this uh medieval people were tacky as hell like whatever a medieval person saw something they were like ideally this would have red and green stripes i mean just at a minimum (laughs) you know like they're wearing incredibly garish colors which you know they're growing their own dyes and stuff using the three field system but what you know um (laughs) they're they're out here dyeing their hose yellow they have all over their walls they're painting murals you know even if they're just doing it themselves um so it's like living in a world where everything is is like covered in street art, but it's in your house, right? Yeah, it's like so living you could, in the yeah. Mission District of San Francisco, but exactly, yeah, yeah. And so, and every single thing that you will see from the medieval period is just dark. It's just dank. And um, we're yeah. starting to see that get a bit um, addressed. So, for example, in the Green Knight, we have better clothing. Yes, um, and it, we we do see some color and texture and like bells and things like that. And I really like that about it. But it does like lean into the dank a lot of the time, you know. Oh my god, that's one. Just like stone walls. <laughs> stone walls in movies. So it's like everything is a stone wall. Medieval people didn't just have like stone walls. Everything was plastered and then covered with a terrible mural. Um and <laughs> but the thing is plaster falls off walls, right? So if you don't keep repairing it, then it's just gonna fall down. So everyone sees a castle now and it's like, oh, they lived in a big stone room. And it's like, no, they did not. It's just that no yeah. one's kept the plaster work. Yeah. Because it's like that and, now doesn't mean it was like that in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Well you can't be plaster the castle for your film because it's a medieval castle (laughs) exactly so it's like um if you go to dover castle they've done a really good job of uh doing some they've like replastered the walls and uh they've uh, painted them up and that Mm. does a better idea of uh, showing you what would be there it's one of english heritage's few castles that isn't falling down i know right (laughs) like um and to be fair i love the falling down ones too you know i'm i'm a romantic at heart as well but you know, it, it's just, that doesn't make it quote unquote accurate. And the thing is, I'm not even really asking you to be accurate in your medieval movie. I don't care. I don't care about that. Best movie, Knight's Tale. Hands down. Oh, I, Tale. I, absolutely. A Knight's Tale. Bang. Yeah. Bang. Yeah. Like, I absolutely love A Knight's Tale. It's not even a question. That's what's up. I love Monty Python and the Holy Grail. All this stuff I love, you know, and that's fine. What I have more of an issue with is like big budget ones that purport Mm. to be historically accurate and then aren't because this is where people get their idea of the middle ages from and then they say ridiculous things to you over and over again so it's like every time i gotta see a medieval movie that's got a witch panic in it i just cry inside because i'm like (laughs) mate no you're 300 years too early (laughs) this does not exist you know or you know just that there will be a lot of stuff about the 14th century my favorite century that shows the black death and and rightly so like come on make a black death movie absolutely all day long but like you get that that was weird right like yeah. <laughs> like the thing about it, it would be like doing a doing a movie about covid and being like yeah in the 21st century people never went to the pub and you know they it's like no this is an anomaly yeah. right this, this is, is one only and yeah and so people extrapolate from that they go it's the entire thousand years 
they probably couldn't even tell you what a medieval year was. The number of times I will mm. tell people, people will tell me something's medieval and they're talking about the 18th century. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's pretty intense. Um, and I'm like, guys, if you see, again, if you see in the powdered wigs, you've gone too far. It's not, we're not medieval anymore. Or like the ch- like the evil church is a cop that's hiding under your bed waiting to stop you from doing science. That's, that's <laughs> like my least favorite trope, especially because the medieval church is like actually the biggest one throwing money at like, hey, do some science. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, it's like you, you have to understand that this is a period of time that's got its own rules and it's just not the same as the modern period and that's good and interesting actually not a reason to go oh it was trash like romans magna carta henry the eighth here we are yeah (laughs) you wanna you gotta dig into it baby you gotta dig into it and like not and not believe braveheart please We've had a prior episode actually on everything that was wrong with Braveheart. It was uh, it, it was one of yeah, our I bet. yeah, yeah. And we we didn't even scratch the surface yeah. on that. It's so bad. It's so bad. <laughs> so not so much Hollywood links, but hmm. you you mentioned about how that's how people form their opinions of Dark Ages, medieval period, powdered wigs hmm. gone too far. I have a theory. Uh, it uh-huh. is a theory because I can't I can't speak to people of friend uh, and you know though we have no documents to check this out. Uh, but I have a theory in that any society of probably any period basically needs to make the previous one look like the worst time to be alive. And I've mm. I've kind of latched onto this throughout the Georgian and Victorian period when you've got all of the pollution and rickets and poor diet and everything like that and it's it's in the interest of those societies to go well at least you're not medieval are you it could be worse (laughs) how have later periods sought to build those myths that's really really interesting because um you know similarly a lot of the time you do actually see some victorians so for example like the ones involved in the arts and crafts movement who really latch on to the medieval period and they're like oh that's that's what was up that was the good stuff you know yeah, which is why want, we get um want a bit of that. neo-gothic buildings yes. yeah like yeah. because it like in, in in and so they're they're setting that up in out opposition to um, basically expanding factories and industrialization. And they're like, oh, here's this romantic medieval past when everyone was just in a field uh, contemplating God. And, you know, here's a an absolutely fabulously gorgeous painting of St. Cecilia, you know, and this is why we get all the cool churches that I like. And Victorians do some nice things with it that I really enjoy. But like, yeah, they're guilty of this romanticization of the medieval past. Yeah, I, but I do think that you're really right. I think that there is this kind of form of constant propaganda about how bad the past was. And hey, you know what? I'm a woman and I buy into this and I'm like, I would much rather be alive right now than in the medieval period. Thank you. Like not even yeah. a question. Oh my God, I want, uh, I, I really just require antibiotics. Yes. Like, or that, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's like a zero for me. I, yeah. I can maybe live without electricity, but I'm not doing it without antibiotics. Yeah. I'm not doing it. So, um, you know, there, there are real advancements there. But it's interesting how we kind of use the medieval period as a pejorative. So like, I'll see people talk about uh, medicine in the medieval period being bad. And I will hear people say that Romans had good medicine and i'm like whoa whoa wow (laughs) like where did you get this from it's like you get that medieval people are working with the same medicine that romans had except for better because they've also like done a bunch of 
you know, experiment, like they've seen what works and then they keep doing that. But people will think that Romans were like doing surgery or something. And I'm like, homie, Romans had bans on dissection. Medieval people don't uniformly have bans on like cadaver dissection, but Roman people do, right? So it's like, there's actually way more room for medical learning in the medieval period, but people just make this assumption. And, you know, a kind of, I think it does have to do with, you know, we compare ourselves, for example, to the Victorians and we go, well, they didn't have very good medicine, right? So therefore it must've been like even worse, like so much worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. And we do this thing about imagining it's worse, it's worse, it's worse. And then weirdly, it's Rome, it's good now. But the again, the it's Rome, it's good now has to do with us telling ourselves stories to justify slavery. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't think all the slaves thought it was, it was very yeah. good, you know. And, and it, it's, it's about the way that we build things. So, for example, in the States where I'm from, you know, all of our, all of our government buildings are neoclassical, right? Like yeah. we're, we're, we're expressly calling back to this and saying, oh, like that's, that's what's good and that's what you want to emulate. And people just buy that, which is, you know, it, it, it's a form of propaganda and it's very, very effective architecture. What can I say? But yeah, I, I do think that you're right. I think we're always comparing ourselves to like the last people and saying there before the grace of God go I. And it's really easy to do that, especially with the medieval period, because nobody learns about it because it's way yeah. too complex. So if you don't, if you were never taught about it in school, it's really easy for you to go dark ages. It was a bad time. Don't need to know about it. Anyway, here's Henry the eighth, you know, and yeah. that's skip ahead, it's, skip it's ahead, skip easy. ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, music and divorce laws and uh, mm. and so forth and we don't need we we don't need the black death and the wars of the roses and then yeah yeah i just found an interesting point so I, for my day job i work with the welfare system mm. so i'm uh, i sort of represent people with appeals and you only have to say the phrase i think the welfare system needs looking at and you will instantly get back to do you want them to all go back to the workhouse and oh it's just used now. Uh, no, I don't. I just yeah, think exactly. that we, we should treat them with a bit more dignity, <laughs> not make it worse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why would I want that? Yeah. Why? <laughs> like, over and over, you know, the, the past as a cudgel is, is something that comes up repeatedly. And, you know, you see, you will see that now, for example, um, with the advancements of, for example, like LGBTQ people or women, where it's all like, oh, well, you should be so lucky because da, 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 in the medieval period. And you're like, okay, I mean, sure, but that's like true of everything. Yeah. So, you know, like, well, what do you want me to say, you know? Yeah. It's like, because you, you still get that thing of, you know, well, well, you can vote. Yeah. You have been able to do for nearly a hundred years. Yeah, it's not a new yeah. thing, you know. So you can stop <laughs> being grateful for it now, you know. Yeah, like, oh, oh fantastic. I simply love to vote. Yeah. <laughs> and I do. I do love to vote. I'm a real voting nerd. I, I, you know, I would also like equal pay, please. That'd be nice. And then you get, well, aren't you lucky you're working, you know? Mm. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Well, you know, do, do bear in mind, you're getting exactly the same rate for History Rage that Kyle and I are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Totally, we're so Love that for me. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> no glass ceiling here, baby. <laughs> so how do we get out of this cycle of myth building, the you know, this this view of the Dark Ages, this view of the medieval period? What what would you like to see done that that corrects that? Um, I think that one of the things that we have to do is we have to start putting the medieval period into the generalized history curricula is is what's up um because I, yeah i do think that we just fast forward through it you know you pick a couple things you know here it'll be you know 1066 magna carta 
Yeah, like maybe the Hundred Years' War, Black Death, bang, Henry VIII, you know, and and there's a reason for it, and it's because it's complex. But I think that one of the things that we need to start doing with history is saying to people, it's complex, you know, it's it's big. There's no easy answers for this. And I actually think that um, children are way more intellectually capable than we give them credit for. And mm. I think that if you tell them something like history in England at the time is really different to history in what is now Spain. And that's really different to, to what was happening in Italy. There's different things going on in different places at different times, but here's some key rules overall. People love that. They like complexity. Yeah. They like something that they can go look into if they want. And if they don't want to, then, Hey, at least they know, well, here's, here's some things about what was going on at the time. And, and we need to also embed within to our history, not just bigging up empires, right? Because that's what a lot yeah. of this has to do with is saying that, well, if there isn't an empire, then there's, and, and specifically an empire that's attacking and enslaving brown people, interestingly, um, then then it's not worth knowing about and you don't need to, it's, it's just bad. You know, there's nothing wrong with having smaller kingdoms, fundamentally. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. And there's all kinds of interesting ways that rule happened in the medieval period. You know, we've got like peasant cooperatives. We've got, you know, yeah, uh, yeah big kingdoms. We've got all sorts of different interesting things. And it's, it's cool to think about, you know. So allowing for complexity, allowing, you know, I don't know, maybe teachers to not have all the answers. Like yeah. you not say it, it should be okay to be like, well, I don't know, because it's it's so complex. Maybe we could look it up. That should be something that we introduce. And if we start getting more people learning about the medieval period, then we won't just have this gaping hole that they can project their own biases onto as a result. Again, one of the issues going through my history teaching mm. when, when I was, when I was, I say learning very much in inverted commas there, <laughs> kind of being told more than learning. But I was found that they, they don't teach you how to be a historian. Mm, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I had to, I had to take up history myself to even hear the phrase "primary source." Mm, you know, yeah. they don't teach you where you can go and look at this, how you can do research, and how mm-hmm. you can find the part of history that you're interested in and mm. dig into it, however weird and nerdy that might be. Yeah, I think the number of people that think historians that we read textbooks, <laughs> you know, and like that's what we do. It's like, no, no, that that's not what's up. You've got to go find actual documents um, and, and do the work yourself. And yeah, I think that if we started getting kids uh, looking at things like that earlier on, that would be really cool for them. Um, because frankly, it's cool stuff. Show them the body tapestry right now. Come on, everybody wants to yeah. see, like, find the naked guy. And, you know, see who gets shot in the eye with an arrow, you know, and that's and that's yeah. a real source. And it's it's important, you know, you can introduce these things earlier on. And I think kind of telling people what the business of doing history is, is going to be part of, of what needs to happen if we're going to have a conversation about what history means. Yeah, I'd love I mean, we did a school trip over to France doing the uh, so we we'd go and see the bio tapestry and it was, you know, it was magnificent to actually see it. Mm, mm. But it's like, I'm aged 11 at the time Mm -hmm. and looking at this thing and, you know, I'm then told, well, this is the story of the Norman conquest. And Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to believe that. I think the one question that would be missing there from, from if I said, this is the story of the Norman conquest, somebody should say to me, how do you know? Mm -hmm. And that is for my money, the bit that's missing. Yeah. 
and, and I think I think you're absolutely right. How do you know and yeah. who's telling that story? Yes. Yeah. You know, whose version of events is this? And you know, it's it's introducing that critical lens that I think is so important. And and frankly, if we had more people who knew about the the real business of doing history, which is frankly analysis, you know, we wouldn't be in such uh, the bother that we are in now with, you know, with your auntie believing every single email that she's forwarded or like every (laughs) meme from Facebook, right? You know, if there were, if people were able to kind of cast a critical eye on historical documents, then it allows you to be much more savvy with media generally and ask yourself who wants you to understand this and why, you know? Um, it's a it's a benefit for society as a whole obviously um and you know there's the knowledge for knowledge's sake which i'm 100% here for frankly like let's do all the knowledge that we can sounds great to me but there are also a lot of knock on benefits to introducing what the historical method is and making everyone feel like maybe they can be a historian in their own way yeah even if you don't have the gcse mm-hmm. you can still get out there and do it Absolutely. So to start to wrap things up, I note you're the author of Middle Ages, A Graphic History. And I did see this in Waterstones the other day. I think, ooh, I might have to get that myself. Um, What can you tell us about this project and what you've got planned next? Oh, it's uh, really, really exciting um, because I think, so what the Middle Ages, A Graphic History is meant to do is I wanted it to introduce everything that I teach first year university courses. So like broad themes, what I think is kind of like, this is a 101 primer. Here's what you need to know about the Middle Ages. And if you want to know more from there, you can go and have a look and see. So, you know, it it talks about the complexities, um, but we also pick up all the way through it, various strands. So, you know, we'll talk about new forms of monasticism, you know, yeah, like the Holy Roman Empire when it it rises and falls, um, where, you know, you get the Islamic conquests and who's doing what. We hit the Hundred Years' War, you know, basically the really big themes and and stuff like the three-field system, that's in there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But there's really good pictures of it, too, so it's okay. Um, And it's got an absolutely gorgeous uh, illustrations by my uh, my illustrator, uh, Neil Max Manuel, and he's done a lot of work for Time Team and stuff. So mm-hmm. we spent a really long time basing the images on medieval imagery yes. so that people would kind of get an idea of what's going on there. So, you know, you name it, we do it. We got the Vikings. We also uh, talk about um, overlooked groups and minorities in the Middle Ages, like um, Jewish people and women and sex workers and people with leprosy, stuff like that, and, you know, conceptions of the other. So it's, um, I think, for being only, I think it's like 172 pages, it's a really, it's a real accessible way to understand the Middle Ages, because I just want people to know it's fun, right? Like the Middle Ages isn't the the Dark Ages. It's a really interesting time where beautiful things happened and cool and interesting thoughts are had and people have complex and interesting lives. And if I can kind of get in front of people with the pictures that's my thing right yeah. people go ah mm-hmm. well actually this is this isn't so daunting it's not just like some huge dusty tome so yeah. uh that is available well I've, I've actually never seen it in a bookstore with my own eyeballs but yeah, I, should, right. I should go do some more digging uh but um the next thing that i have coming out this time next year is on ww norton i have a book coming out called the once in future sex uh which i think is the going medieval, colon, going medieval on uh, gender roles in society that is talking about 
um, women in the medieval period, uh, why, <laughs> like the, the complex uh, ways that we talk about them and how we kind of make up rules for why women are second class citizens, but we're constantly changing those rules all the time yeah. in order to make sure that women are second class citizens. So um, it talks about, um, you know, philosophy, it talks about sex, it talks about beauty standards, and it talks about working conditions for women in the medieval period. So I'm really excited about it. And that will be this time next year. Excellent. We'll look forward to it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Um, that's opened my eyes to a lot of things, not least of which, how interesting the three-field system that's actually right. is. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's given us both a fair few things to think about. Um, e- even Kyle, as a medievalist himself, is, uh, you know, I saw a lot of oh, nodding and looks on the video there. So thank you very much, Eleanor, yes, for coming on you. and sharing your righteous anger. Uh, thank you so much for letting me yell. I, I really needed it. <laughs> if you'd like to know more about Eleanor's work then you should start by reading her excellent book and uh, we're going to link to where you can buy that into the show notes and you can follow Eleanor on Twitter using the uh, tag at going medieval thank you very much Eleanor we do hope uh, you'll come back and join us again in future series because I imagine you've got a lot more you can get quite angry about oh yeah I I can yell all day long don't even worry about that Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. So you can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. And you can leave comments, thoughts, and please send your own rages using the hashtag History Rage. We want to know what really gets up your nose. If you've enjoyed our work, then please subscribe. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Good Pods, or Podchaser, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thanks very much for listening. From all of us here at History Rage, bye-bye. Bye-bye.